Should I do Aaron Harvey? Aaron Stallworth? What yeah, what I? are you feeling today? What are you thinking? I just, you know, as I poured my whiskey, I certainly suddenly felt Aaron Harvey, but... <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to The Dot Project. I am Rhonda Elizabeth. And I am Aaron Stallworth. Or I am Aaron Harvey. Which sounds better? I don't know. Aaron Harvey Stallworth. Which you, made, which you had in there originally. <laughs> your name. The DAP Project is a podcast that explores culture and politics through DAP, the Black man's most nuanced and telling gesture. We have conversations with Black men from all walks of life and ask them about one unifying element about being Black man, DAP. And as we emerge from a disastrous presidency, a period of racial reckoning, and a global pandemic that is ongoing, we're asking, what does it mean to come back better? How can we use our radical imagination to envision and create the world we deserve? Did you know that Robin D.G. Kelly wrote a book on the Black radical imagination? I just got it. I'm excited to read it. Sounds like a good book. We're talking with brothers who are doing the work. Our conversation this week is about justice and structural biases in the justice system. The news that I'll share which will sound tragically familiar, highlight some of these important issues. Last September, 2020, Diamond Ford and her fiance were asleep in their bed in Jacksonville, Florida, when she heard an intruder. Fearing for her safety, she shot at the intruder, then called 911 to report the shooting and request support. Ford claims that she shot in self-defense, essentially invoking the standard ground law, and then heard the police identify themselves after she fired the shots. The detective who was hit was wearing a bulletproof vest and sustained non-life-threatening injuries, so he survived the shooting. Ford and her fiance were then charged with attempted murder of a police officer and possession of a narcotic with intent to sell. Bail for Diamond Ford was set at over half a million dollars, an impossible sum except her attorney petitioned for a lower bond amount and it was denied. At that point, the fundraising began. Dignity and Power, the National Bail Fund Network and the Minnesota Freedom Fund coordinated to raise more than $530,000 to free her. This case highlights a number of complex issues. First is the question of whether the SWAT team announced themselves as they executed this high-risk warrant And it's a question that will cause many of us to wince in remembrance of the Louisville Metropolitan Police Department storming into Breonna Taylor's apartment and her being fatally shot in the raid. In the case of Diamond Ford, neighbors interviewed said that they did not hear police announce their arrival. So there's the question of whether they announced themselves as they arrived at her home at eight o'clock in the morning. Second is the use of the stand your ground defense which allows a person to engage in reasonable force, including deadly force, to protect themselves against an intruder in their home. We remember this, that George Zimmerman claimed stand your ground in his murder of unarmed Trayvon Martin, and Zimmerman was acquitted in 2013. In this situation, where Ford faced what appears to be a real threat against her life and the life of her fiance, 
will her defense be given fair consideration? Third, cash bail. And here Ford seems to have achieved an important victory against uh, insurmountable odds, seemingly insurmountable odds. Cash bail, as we'll talk about later in this episode, is essentially an exchange of money for freedom for people who are pre-trial. According to the bailout project, on any given night, there are half a million people sitting in jail before trial simply because they can't afford to post bail. Half a million people away from their families, missing work, away from their communities, feeding the mass incarceration system. That Ford was released on bail is a win for the organizing community and for the effort to end the cash bail system. Ford case will, Ford's case will be one to watch in 2021. That's my news. What are you thinking about? We have been on quarantine behavior for almost an entire year, folks. My office in DC shut down while I was en route to a conference in Los Angeles. It was a small meeting, so we exercised some basic hand washing standards and hoped for the best. Luckily, no one at our evening event contracted the coronavirus. On my flight home, two days later, the plane was noticeably less crowded and a few of my fellow passengers were wearing masks. That week, I was unable to attend my uncle's funeral due to CDC guidelines. My family and I soon settled into our quarantine lifestyle. That settlement or transition came easy for some, but not easy at all for others. Jobs have been lost. Eviction notices have been served. Children are unable to access their virtual schools. Domestic violence has seen an uptick, depression as well. And the financial well-being of many is non-existent. These moments of despair are disproportionately assigned to black folks. The gap between the haves and the have-nots has always been a bit wider for black people. It is no mystery as to why this is. We at the Debt Project plan to focus on how we can make this better speaking with guests that are doing the work. Subscribe to the Debt Project podcast to hear more from Black men and women doing the work to help our fellow citizens emerge from this pandemic better off than they were before our world changed in the middle of March of 2020. 2.3 million Americans are imprisoned and nearly twice that many are on parole or on probation. Is this really how we invest in people and build strong communities. And for what? Is this justice? Is equity even possible in a system rooted in racism and white supremacy? We put some of our biggest questions to former public defender and current director of NYU Center on Race, Inequality, and the Law, Vincent Sutherland. He's also a good friend of Aaron's, so that made this interview fun as well. Of course, we talk about DAP, and he shares how his growing up in two different cities in Connecticut influenced his understanding of Black culture and how and when he developed his interest in the lawyer that he later became. Let's get into it. Staying true to our roots, um, can you think of either the first memorable moment of DEP or even when you first gave DEP as a man and it was a Connecticut uh, hometown yeah 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 yeah. um 
So, you know, I, I think it was probably, um, so I grew up in Connecticut, as Aaron mentioned. Um, and as you can imagine, like Connecticut is, you know, has like a reputation of being a very um, lily white suburban place. And I think a well-earned rep reputation in many ways, but there are parts of it that make it kind of a microcosm of America. I say a lot to say when I grew up, growing up in Connecticut, I started off um, in this city called uh, Stratford, which uh, borders uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut. And Stratford is kind of like a, you know, where I grew up and lived there until I was in about fourth grade, predominantly black and Latinx community. And so I remember even back as early as like that age, um, learning about DAP and not really learning about it from somebody like saying it to me, but just like us doing it, like me and my black classmates, my friends. Um, and I remember moving from, um, from, from Stratford to this, to the town where I really grew up in like my more formative years in middle school and, and high school, it's a town called Beacon Falls, which just by the name of it, um, you can imagine what that place looked like, right? Um, I remember being the only, uh, I was one of the very few, uh, I was the only black student in, in my elementary school. Um, and, and, you know, I think when I moved there, maybe a year or two after I moved there, a couple other black kids um, moved to Beacon Falls as well. And so we kind of doubled the population of black students um, just by virtue of having like my, my, uh, my, my, my friend and his brother uh, moving, to, moving to Connecticut, tripled the population. Um, of black students in the school. My brother is five years old and he was too young at the time to go to elementary school, of course. But um, so I remember like that was part of it too, um, growing up with, with and having another black student in the school. And in middle school, which was in the next town over, but still like super close to where I went to elementary school, um, there, were, there were a few more black students. Um, and like DAP was just like part of how we all like took the fact that we stood out among everyone as like the only black students in the school, our own cool little way of like being a community. We were kind of had like this inside thing that only we did with each other. And, you know, it was, it was, it was part of stuff that we saw, like, you know, I grew up, you know, I'm, I'm 43. And so I grew up like, right through like the public enemy ice cube nwa like the era of like conscious hip-hop music right. and like wearing african cookies to, to school and kind of and 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 so adapt was like part of our thing you know and like we didn't do it with the white students um mm -hmm. it wasn't a thing that we like and you know some of those students tried to get in it but we like it was not <laughs> right wouldn't work with them um so yeah so that's that's the earliest i can remember uh that for, for me um is really part mm -hmm. of my earliest you know earliest way I identified with with folks who look like me you know we uh the, the little bit of research we've done about dap and we try to find a picture of people giving dap we get more hits if we t type in bro hug and the funny yeah. thing i was i was talking to um uh a white friend uh and his daughter said oh yeah it's cool we get bro hugs and it just it made me think a, a certain kind of way about you know what it means to me as a black man 
and what it means to this 14 year old white girl um, and how the bridge is so long and so far between on what it means to us. Yes, a greeting, it feels cool. And yeah, I, I feel that way too when I give when I give you that, when I see you, I feel cool doing it. But it's still so much more other folks can never relate to. It's yeah. Just, it's yeah. something that makes me think about it. But um. Um, before the pandemic hit, um, you know, a, a friend of mine uh, passed away after a battle with like a, a, a pretty long illness. And it was that kind of dynamic where he was one of these people who knew kind of everybody in the community. Um, and I remember going to his kind of celebration of life and we all had like a lot of like acquaintances and friends in common and just being able to kind of like dap folks up. It was, it was, it was, it was kind of like a, it was like a feeling of like, I see you. Um, I feel, I, I feel the same kind of pain that you're, that you're in right now. I feel like an emotional connection to you that's deeper than just like, you know, um, that's deeper than something that, that, might be like feel fleeting and 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 and, and you know a, a way to kind of em embrace and like hold those feelings together for each other and support one another and know that you're and just like have like a rock uh uh that you that you can cling to with each other and so it was kind of it's a really meaningful gesture um and i think this pandemic has really exposed and helped to make clear just how important um, it is as a gesture. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's beyond a handshake, you know, yeah. um, it's beyond a high five, you know, it's, it's, it's something, it's something deeper than that. And it's, it's hard to even put into words, um, but it, it's, it's incredibly meaningful. Um, yeah. So, you know, Curious, when did you first get interested um, in the law? I got interested in the law pretty early on. You know, I remember growing up in Stratford, I went to this after school program. Uh, we had like a size where we got to do kind of like a mini, like a mock trial. Um, and I remember the, the, the mock trial was something about like somebody had a dog that was on a leash and the dog bit somebody. I got to play one of the lawyers who was defending the person who owned the dog. And, and somebody else was like, so, so we kind of had like a little trial. And so that kind of got me actually interested in like courtrooms and lawyer and being a lawyer and all that kind of stuff. But then I really got interested in the type of law that I engage in and do now. It was kind of in the mix of that awakening that I had um, when I moved from Stratford to Beacon Falls in middle school, you know, what I noticed like very clearly was that everyone, like my identity and my race shaped not only like the perceptions of people that people had about me, but the way in which I walked through the world. And right around the same time, I started learning about like the civil rights movement, learning about enslavement, learning about kind of our history and learning about how all that was constructed by way of law. It made me, you know, think, well, how do we actually change people's behavior? How do we change something about this system, this dynamic? How do we change the way that people respond or react to me um, or respond or react to people that, that look like me? Um, and there's a law, a tool that allows you to do that. Um, and, and that's, I think, what really got me interested and focused on wanting to be a lawyer. And I remember in, um, in eighth grade, we had to deliver this kind of, this, uh, 
this, this speech about you know, anything you wanted it to be about. Mine was about racism in America. And this was right after, uh, you know, um, seeing Rodney King uh, being beaten um, by officers in the street, um, you know, and, and, and it was in 1991, um, the tribe in like 1992, I think. Um, uh, officers were acquitted. Um, and so I was in, I was in high school, like when those officers were quitting the LA riots happened. Um, and, you know, to me, like seeing his experience with the police, seeing kind of what happened to him, seeing the way in which the police, um, were able to, you know, get acquitted and walk after having beaten him within inches of his life and there'd be no real re repercussions for it. It was just outrageous to me. Um, and, and it sparked like this desire in me to, you know, figure out how I might change that, that dynamic. And I wasn't sure if it would be that I'll be a lawyer, um, but I knew that the law was something that we had to change um, or at least push back against um, as part of the overall enterprise of fixing that, that dynamic. And so that's kind of how I got, got interested in and got pulled into it. And, you know, from there, as I learned more and more about our history, um, it, it just became more and more clear to me that that's what I wanted to do uh, with my life. So, yeah. Let's go back to spring 2020. We're curious how you experienced what unfolded last spring, being both a Black man, being at the head of an or a center that are charged with exploring race and equality in the law, having the tools that you do and the understanding that you do of the law. For me, thinking back on it and thinking back on George Floyd's uh, murder by the police, um, you know, it was one of these things that I think, I'll say that I was surprised by not by the fact that he was murdered by the police. I think that has become um, far too common. Um, uh, I think I was, I was surprised by the outcry um, in the aftermath of it. Um, surprised because, because it had become so common, um, because it had happened so many times in the past, because there have been so many black men and women who have been killed by the police. Um, and, you know, the fact of the matter is we can sit here and name names um, uh, that would roll off our tongues as though they're family members because we know their stories so intimately and so well. And so for me, I didn't expect such a mass movement and such an uprising around racial justice in the wake of his death. Um, it's kind of like the, it felt like the, it was the straw that kind of broke the camel's back, but it was like the million, you know, most death talks about the million other needles underneath it. Um, so I think it was a kind of the culmination of so much black death at the hands of law enforcement. Um, and so, you know, I, I, there was, there's a part of me that was surprised and shocked. There's a part of me that was incredibly and deeply hopeful about the moment and what might come of it. Um, as you start, started to see kind of these massive, corporations, you know, put their statements out, you see people 
like painting Black Lives Matter uh, uh, on on their streets. Um, you see uh, white people start to wake up to their privilege and to their position in society and understanding the ways in which um, their status constructs our lives um, and shapes our experiences. And so, so I felt incredibly hopeful. Um, and then I guess the last piece of it was I felt really, really, um, you know, busy um, because I think I think there was I felt like this need to try and take advantage of the moment and leverage it because I didn't know how long that moment would last and I don't even know um, if we could if we could say that the moment is still with us um, uh, at least as it was in the summer of 2020, right? Um, we did a lot of work to try and advocate and push around divesting from policing and divesting from the carceral state and trying to shift and reallocate resources and attention and investments in communities and trying to think about what is different, what are, what are some different responses to the concerns that, that have been brought to bear by um, the criminal legal system? What are some different responses to the ways in which we're dealing with race and inequality in this country? Um, I gave like a lot of, I did like a lot of trainings and kind of educational pieces with, with um, organizations, both public interest organizations and organizations that are like private, you know, law firms and other entities that, that needed to kind of have that consciousness. And I kind of wonder even today, like how much of that is window dressing or was window dressing, how much of it is actually going to stick and how much um, intentionality people are going to bring to bear to really tackling some of these problems. And, and, um, and so kind of, I experienced it as like, you know, uh, in some ways I, I felt like, okay, this, this is what we've all been waiting for. And when I say we, I mean, folks who've been like pushing on issues of racial justice for so long. Um, and, 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 you know, it felt like a culmination in a lot of ways. Um, so that's the way I experienced it. Um, and, and now, um, you know, thinking about all the things that have happened over the last, you know, few months and in the last few weeks, um, you know, is part of what I think has always been the case in this country, which is, um, you know, this dialectic where you, you have, uh, you make progress, um, you see a spark, a push, and then there's a violent and, and widespread backlash and retrenchment to that progress and push. Um, and I think, you know, what we saw on January 6th and what we've seen, you know, with the you know, 70 plus million people who are still disillusioned and, and believing and buying into this mythology of, of the need to be white, um, uh, that backlash is still with us and it's a constant kind of hum um, that we that we have to be vigilant about. And so, you know, for me, I knew like, I felt like there's a lot of like flash in the pan efforts, people trying to, like I said, paint in the streets and doing all these symbolic gestures. Um, but it's kind of like the work, you know, the work's gonna be here. It's been here before folks arrive. It's gonna be here after all these folks and the protests and things uh, dissipate. And so we just gotta keep keep pushing along, keep keep plugging along, keep doing the work. You know, so that's, that's kind of how I looked at it.
it seems the backlash occurs just as significant inroads are being made to challenge power. Turning to incarceration and prison reform, the latest prison reform movement includes sentencing people to electronic monitoring, lockdown drug treatment centers, psychiatric institutions, and the like. The prison abolitionist Maryam Kaba views this as sending criminalized populations to quote unquote, somewhere else, wow. That framing of sending people to somewhere else was really new and completely mind blowing to me. So I'm wondering, can we think differently about sending people somewhere else and actually become uncomfortable with criminalizing certain behaviors and sending people away? I think this 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 concern or this issue about you know reform, progress, advancement, and retrenchment is um, you know it's it's like the American way. You know, you think about enslavement, um, you had Reconstruction, and a violent backlash to that civil rights movement, um, uh, and that violent backlash, I should say, included lynching, included all the things that kind of started to that we saw in, in the you know, 1890s, 1900s, 20s, 30s, 40s, civil rights movement and backlash to that, which has been the last like 30, 40, 50 years, right? Um, Obama's ascension to the presidency and even as a symbolic gesture and then a backlash to that, we get Trump. And so I think um, that's part of like the way in which our cycle of history is, has always presented itself. And I think we've fooled ourselves as a country into believing that racial progress is inevitable without recognizing that it actually requires people to push and that there are people on the other side pushing back. Um, and that in order to change and, and to really advance, you know, touching on that point you talked about is like when people start to get uncomfortable that it's touching um, my economic interest or my pocketbook, um, you know, a lot of the progress that we've seen made happens because um, that progress is in the interest of someone who's powerful, someone who's in, the, who, who, who um, uh, you know, uh, it's in their interest for, for, for progress to happen. And so um, in 2008, the economic collapse happened, right? And, and there was a lot of effort uh, because state budgets were so um, uh, run dry to try and trim and slim down the carceral state, at least among state governments, right? Um, and a lot of people were pushing to make that happen. And that was because um, there was this kind of convergence of interest between like, like our financial budget priorities and the fact we can't continue to incarcerate people because we just can't afford it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, so, and, so, and so that's kind of like the way in which progress, you know, that's one of the levers that I think we have to be mindful of as, as advocates and as activists to try and push and try and, and, and push for progress. Um, you know, you think about Brown versus Board of Education, like people talk about decision, that decision about the Supreme Court is eliminating legalized segregation in this country. And it's not as though the Supreme Court had some kind of epiphany um, about race in America or as though America itself um, all of a sudden had a moral reckoning that under, an understanding that race and racism was wrong. You know, Brown was decided in 1954 and the Fair Housing Act was was passed in 1968, which was kind of the official end of the civil rights movement. So that's another 14 years of struggle. Um, 
and, and Brown hasn't uh, Brown hasn't been implemented really um, uh, in most places in the country. And so, but there was the, you know this this notion that we need to if we're, if we're going to talk about ourselves as a democracy, we need to export that democracy around the world and, and, and demonstrate that we are a democratic nation, that we treat people fairly and justly and equally, and therefore we can't have a system of segregation that's legalized. And so there is this kind of, again, this interest. Um, and so that's like part of what we have to keep in mind. The concern about like elsewhere and other places when we think about the carceral state, it's so much easier for us as a society to deal with the things that drive people into the criminal legal system by, um, by isolating them and sending, sending them away and putting them kind of out of sight and out of mind than it is to invest in the ways that we need to in communities, um, to think critically and clearly about how lack of education, lack of uh, employment opportunities, uh, poor food and health, poor food and water and other kind of parts of your environment um, lack of access to political power. All these things and many more are the things that trauma, just exposure to trauma and violence, uh, um, and not just violence from your own family, but violence from a society that, that looks at the white body as like the standard by which all other bodies are judged. Um, being born into that type of world in and of itself is traumatizing and, and in and of itself is going gonna, is gonna to shape the way in which you react to the world around you and the way the world around you reacts to you. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's so much easier for us as a society to deal with those concerns by just outsourcing people and putting them, putting them somewhere else, as you, as you so, I think, appropriately put it, um, than it is for us to grapple with the very real and deep-seated concerns that um, would require us to reorder the way in which society operates. Um, that that that's kind of the, that's our that's been our default response. Um, and I think the other piece of this is that you know our, our criminal legal system is not something that that was just um, you know dropped down from outer space um, uh, as as you know starting with Richard Nixon and the war on drugs, um, or even the Johnson administration where he began kind of the war on poverty and kind of all, all these like wars against societal ills, right? Um, it's an outgrowth of and rooted in the very fabric of our country. Like enslavement was ordered around the criminal legal system. Um, you think about the way that race was constructed, um, uh, the dynamic between who was free and who was not free, who could live their lives in any way that they wanted to, who could not, who was restricted by where they could move, where they could, you know, who they could, what they could learn, who they could gather with, and who had no, had no restrictions, who could own property and who was treated as property. Those were all lines that were delineated by the criminal law. And that shadow, that ideology, um, that, that kind of, that is with us today. Um, and so when you think about the system as a system that was designed from the beginning to keep a whole class of people in their place at the bottom of society to, to perpetuate a racial caste system that um, is present in everything that we see in the world around us today. And so the system is not really broken. It's operating exactly as it was designed. Um, and I think that part of the, this idea of like sending people away, um, part of putting them in some other place um, it, it is, is, is all part of that design. Um, and so, you know, it's, 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 um, it's a really naughty problem. And I think it's going to require, um, you know, often the, the idea is we were, we might replace the system with something. Um, but the reality is it's not going to be, be just one 
thing. It's going to be, it's got to be a constellation of things um, uh, that, that go beyond um, the types of investments that we've been willing to make uh, to date. Um, but absolutely necessary for us to, you know, completely reimagine um, what the world would look like um, without prisons. If we kind of took prisons off the table altogether, um, what would we do? Um, how would we deal with people who are, have been deprived their entire lives of the types of resources and opportunities that um, so many people uh, take for granted? Um, how do we navigate that type of world? Um, I think that's, those are the questions that we have been unwilling to even ask ourselves because we've been so enamored with uh, this notion that these, that prisons and jails keep us safe um, and do the type of job that we think that they actually do. When in fact, they do kind of the exact opposite of, of keep us safe. Um, um, in a lot of ways, they, they perpetuate um, instability in communities. They, they destroy families, they, they reproduce trauma um, and so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a deeply problematic dynamic um, uh, and especially uh, terrible places when we think about violent crime. Um, if we're thinking about kind of ending violence, um, uh, you know, what we know and, and you know, Danielle Sered, who talks about this, um, she's, she's a founder of Common Justice, who talks about prisons as being, you know, the four kind of drivers of violence are shame, isolation, exposure to violence and the inability to meet one's economic needs, right? What do prisons do? Um, they, 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 the, the features of prisons are shame, isolation, exposure to violence, and, a, and an inability to meet one's economic needs. Those are, those are the very same things that we know drive violent behavior. And so we're treating the problem with, with, with more of the problem. Um, um, and of course, it's all layered with race and inequality. Um, through and through, um, which, which makes things that much worse. Imprisonment has long been a fundamental element to the U.S. economy, from the convict leasing system that former enslavers designed with Southern lawmakers after the Civil War to replace the enslaved people that had been working on the labor camps that were plantations to the $5 billion, billion with a B, industry that the mass incarceration system has become today. How is it possible to reform a system with that scope of financial interest? Our reform efforts seem to be just that, forming prisons again, just in a different shape. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, so it's a, it's a great point. You know, um, what, you're, what you're referring to is kind of, um, you know, this slavery by another name, um, uh, which is, you know, the entire conflict leasing system is exactly right. And um, it, it immediately after um, enslavement ended, um, uh, the, the, the law, um, and this, this is also part of the, the dynamic of our history, um, racism is a shapeshifter. Um, it, it's adaptable and it adapts to the times and it adapts to the dynamics, it adapts to, the concerns that, that those in the status quo have. And, 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 and so what you saw were laws passed in the South that outlawed vagrancy, outlawed uh, being out after dark, outlawed the types of behaviors that you would expect people to engage in if they had been newly freed um, without any kind of 
recourse for themselves. So it wasn't as though people like black people were freed from enslavement and then all of a sudden and given like a house and a job and all these things. You're just freed and like that's, you know, you're like out and that's like the end of it. You don't have like any, so you kind of build it, you're trying to build a life. And so you pass laws around the behaviors that black people are engaged in. And then you take that entire regime and lock people away, hold them in custody um, uh, and lease them out to private corporations um, to engage in uh, the same type of labor that they were engaged in before uh, the regime of enslavement ended, right? Um, and and even kind of the notion of you know the the exception around who can be um, you know slavery being you know ended is written into the Thirteenth Amendment um, to the Constitution, you know, um, except for punishment or crime. And so that's why you see people today working in prisons who are getting paid, you know two, three, four, eight cents an hour um, uh, producing items, products for Fortune 500 companies, right? Um, and, and so you see that same regime in place now. The concern around reform, I think, is, is a really dangerous one because, um, you know, prisons themselves were, were a reform. Um, the very nature of a prison is a reform. Before people were in prisons, um, in their kind of modern iteration, we had kind of these types of punishments you see in medieval Europe, where you'd be like tied to four horses and, and the horses would run apart and you'd be drawn and quartered. So the idea of uh, being incarcerated somewhere was basically you did something and you were sitting there awaiting your punishment. Um, uh, people began to realize that, that that was an inhumane way of going about uh, uh, trying to deal with someone's behavior. Um, and so what they came up with was a system of, of sitting in silence and penitence for you, for the crimes or the things you might've done. Um, and, and so the, the very kind of essence and growth of prisons themselves were, were a reform of a prior system that was just more brutal and more harsh, but in many ways, this system is just as bad, just as brutal, just as harsh. The, the prospects for, for, for changing that, um, I think are, are, you know, it's really challenging. Um, you know, I, I can't say that, that um, I think that it's gonna happen in my lifetime, um, but I do think that as we begin to, um, uh, we, we've, we've seen like folks struggling, struggling against this regime uh, for decades. And you see people like Ruth Gilmore, like Miriam Kaba, um, like so many others, Angela Davis, so many others who have, who have pushed back against the need for uh, a carceral state and pushed back against the way in which um, these institutions operate um, and have provided kind of alternatives uh, that, that require us to imagine what a different world might look like. Um, I, think, I think there is room for it to happen, but you're going to have to absolutely address like, when is it in the interest of the status quo uh, to eliminate that regime. Um, uh, when is kind of enough enough? When is enough for? When is it enough for them? Because um, I think that's you know that to me is a, a real the real question. Um, uh, people stop profiting off it financially um, when people are able to understand that it's not actually providing the measure of safety um, that that that. For folks pretend that it does. Um, you know, you have a few 
brave souls in terms of some prosecutors and some law enforcement officers, some sheriffs, I think, um, who, who have talked about and understand that these, these regimes, these institutions don't work. And I think a lot of it is a very, very slow and steady and stable kind of chipping away at um, these institutions. And, and, you know, and it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's a process that we've dismantled um, and, and, and dismantle piece by piece, bit, bit, brick by brick, because um, the system wasn't built overnight. And I think that's the only way that we kind of are able to make that type of change. Let's situate some of the, speaking of uh, chipping away brick by brick, some of the work that you're doing both as a board member of the bail project and then also here at the, um, well, there at the, at the center. So if you would tell us a little bit about the problem of cash bail generally that um, it attaches a dollar amount to a person's freedom and that dollar amount is generally exorbitant relative to the resources that they have mm-hmm. and how, um, I'm curious about how that work contributes to the larger goal of chipping away and Mm -hmm. forcing more and more conversations about why do we treat people like this? Why do we demand, why do we extract from people who have um, so little resources even more so that their communities continue to be destabilized? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, happy to talk about that. So, So the cash bail system, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of summarizing the really pernicious harm of the system itself, right? Um, it's a system that um, essentially punishes you uh, before you've been convicted of anything, just on, uh, but merely by way of an accusation. Um, uh, and you know, when you're arrested, when you go to see a judge, a judge usually has to make a decision about whether or not to release you um, while your case is, is working its way through the courts or can set some type of conditions on your release, meaning that you have to post some cash amount, bail, or, or some other some other obligation before you're released and able to go forward with your case. And the cash bail system in, in, in this country has been one um, that really greases the wheels of the criminal legal system, right? Um, uh, and the way in which it interacts with race is because of the, of the you know, the, the intersection of, of race and economic disadvantage means that um, black and brown people who are arrested and have bail set on them are less likely to be able to afford uh, those cash bail amounts and therefore have to stay in custody um, while their cases wind their way through the system. Now you can imagine if you're somebody who has been arrested for an offense, whether or not you are guilty and and putting that aside because you're presumed innocent, um, regardless of what you're accused of, there's a presumption of innocence as a bedrock principle of our our, uh, republic. Um, you can imagine sitting in jail knowing that the only way you're going to be able to get out is if you can come up with, with, you know, a couple thousand dollars. The average American um, uh, couldn't come up with a thousand dollars if they needed to um, in a moment's notice. That's just a basic kind of fact of our, of our economic dynamics. And it's certainly the case for black and brown people. And so that's going to lead you to want to do all types of things to resolve that case. Um, if it's going to mean that you're going to be able to get out of uh, jail. Um, and while you're sitting and waiting in jail for your case to be resolved, your employment's passing you by, passing you by, 
you may have childcare concerns that are passing you by, you may have educational concerns that are passing you by, your health and well-being are also at stake and at risk because of all the reasons why we know these places are brutal places to be. Um, and so there are all these pressures that are building and mounting on you um, to resolve that case as quickly as possible. And so what we do at the Bail Project is it's a, it's a, it's a national revolving bail fund. Um, we have our, our bail disruptors in, in just over two dozen uh, uh, sites across the country, um, cities across the country. And, and what those bail disruptors do is when they get it, they'll get a call from either local public defender's office or from the, or from the court, um, uh, alerting them to an arrest that's been made. Um, they'll screen those individuals, determine whether or not they kind of meet certain eligibility qualifications for the bail project itself. So there's thinking about, um, uh, and, and we, don't, we don't determine eligibility based on the crime you're, you've been charged with. It's more about uh, uh, whether like the bail amount itself, um, thinking about how much you know, the bail project needs to post um, and, and thinking about kind of what types of supports can we provide in order to ensure that you're gonna be able to get back and forth to court and resolve the case uh, in the best way possible. Um, and so, kind of going through that rubric, thinking through those specific conditions and then post that person's bail and to provide that person with the supports they might need in order to get back and forth to court. Because the concern the judge has when thinking about bail is whether the person is going to flee or the person is going to commit some new offense, some new crime. Um, and so we do everything we can to provide people the supports they might need in order to avoid either one of those dynamics while posting their bail and allowing them to fight their case from the outside. Um, which, you know, in many ways leads to much better results, not only for the case outcomes, um, whether, it's, whether or not it's cases being dismissed at a much higher rate than they otherwise would be, um, reuniting families, allowing people to resume their lives, um, not having this, uh, this one incident kind of hang over their heads uh, for some interminable time. Um, and in those cases, we're able to avoid uh, more harmful criminal consequences um, that means you're going to avoid all the collateral consequences that come with criminal record, right? And so loss of employment or more difficulty obtaining employment, more difficulty obtaining education, all those other types of things that we know help perpetuate the system of mass incarceration. So what the Bill Project really does is try and address um, uh, one of the kind of anchors of the system of mass incarceration by, by you know, ensuring that freedom is actually free um, uh, rather than putting a price tag on it. What do you no longer believe this year that you believed last year? Oof, uh, <laughs> that's a good one. Um, I thought in terms of the progress that we had made, that we were that we were that we were farther along than we actually are. Um, I say that because um, I guess a couple of reasons. I think the pandemic has exposed like the depth of racial inequality that we have in this country on every vector of American life. And I think even though I knew, um, I might've, I might've had a sense, um, you know, on paper, what those numbers look like. I think viscerally, I, I felt like we were, like the inequality gap was, was um, 
at least moving in, 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 a, in a more positive direction in terms of shrinking. And I think it's, I think it's just growing exponentially and, and it might even be larger than we ever envisioned it being to begin with. Um, and then I also think, um, or thought, um, that, um, you know, after four years of the last administration that people would see just how terrible um, the ideology of white supremacy has been even for themselves. Um, and that might shift their thinking and might reduce the enthusiasm for um, uh, a Trump. Um, and, and now, um, and a lot of this is kind of based on the reactions I've seen to the, to what happened at, at the Capitol, uh, on January 6th, I'm, I'm of the mind that, um, there are members of Congress who are, who are not, um, while they condone, while they, while they claim to, while they claim to, to denounce violence, um, are not all that broken up about what happened, um, but they're more upset that it didn't actually work, you know? Um, um, and that to me, I, 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 didn't, I didn't think or, or necessarily realize that there were that many people in that many positions of power who held that type of a worldview. But if you think about, you know, a sizable portion of the, of the American public, a sizable portion of folks in Congress, um, a majority of the, of the Republican caucus in, in the Senate. Um, you know, we literally had a situation where America's most, I think, virulent racist president in a generation tried to hold on to power by explicitly denigrating the votes of black and brown people in communities uh, like Detroit, Philadelphia, Atlanta, um, uh, and had like a white supremacist coup attempt. Um, and that has not woken people up, um, at least, you know, enough of his supporters up. I mean, I mean, and that's just like back when I, I thought I thought that something like that might change people's minds, um, might help awaken them, um, and it just hasn't. Um, uh, and and you know maybe that's like part of me being hopeful about it, but um, yeah, yeah. So I think that's that's sorry, it's a long-winded answer, but that's kind of where I, that's where I, that's where I come down on it. In reading From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation by Kianka Yamada-Taylor, I was stunned to learn that Maryland State's Attorney, Marilyn Mosby, had ordered, quote, enhanced drug enforcement efforts, end quote, in the area where police first encountered Freddie Gray. This order came three weeks before he, he died as a result of a rough ride with the Baltimore Police Department. 
So just three weeks before his death, she ordered these enhanced drug enforcement efforts in the area where he was uh, frequently seen and known to be. This order shocked me, this knowledge shocked me because I had believed that Mosby through her charging of the police officers involved in his death had a progressive view of policing and police accountability. So Taylor complicates for me any comfort that we might take in having black faces in high places and reminds me that race alone does not guarantee justice, nor does it predict injustice. It's literally not that black and white. And class status remains an important factor in our pursuit of equity. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And, you know, I think it's, I think it kind of goes to this fundamental notion that we've all been kind of brainwashed by this ideology of white supremacy, right? We've all been brainwashed by this notion that, um, that jails and prisons provide us with some measure and police and law enforcement provide us with some measure of safety. Um, we've all been brainwashed by these ideals. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, and I think we, we've not only been brainwashed by it, but we've been starved of any other alternatives, right? And so the only thing that we know, like, the, like you know, I think about when I was a public defender, handling like these cases where I'd have clients who would call the police on, on their neighbor, whoever it was, like our first call is, you know, you know, is somebody yelling, is somebody yelling at you? Call the police. Are you getting into an argument about something that you can settle, you know, as neighbor to neighbor, call the police. Are you having some interpersonal dispute with, you know, a loved one or relative? Call the police. Like we have been starved with options. Um, and so the only thing we know to do is to rely and fall back on the one hammer that we know um, uh, uh, has been with us historically. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a pathology um, that we have to break free of um, and, and, you know, requires kind of having like an anti-racist ethic about it. It requires like thinking about, you know, Black people is, is you know, the, you know, I think Ibram Kennedy talks about the only thing that's wrong with Black people is that we think that something's wrong with Black people, right? Um, and, and and I think that that kind of having that understanding is part of our, our day-to-day um, worldview um, uh, is absolutely not something that's necessary. And, and, you know, for, you know, I've heard, you know, prosecutors like, uh, you know, Marilyn Mosby and others, black prosecutors who, who talk about, um, you know, being just as harsh and punitive as you possibly can be. Um, can somebody say, what's his face Cameron, Attorney General Cameron? Yeah, in, yeah. Mm-hmm. In Kentucky. Yep, 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 exactly, exactly. And so, you know, it's part of that, like, that brainwashing that we have to do a lot of work to push back on. Um, and, and, and part of it is changing culture and a part of it is, changing policy, but, you know, uh, culture is policy for breakfast. So I think really first and foremost is our, our effort to kind of change that paradigm. And I think that's what's so important about the Black Lives Matter movement is they're putting front and center the dignity of Black people um, uh, as like the thing that is 
critically important for us to focus on the humanity of black people is critically important for us to focus on um try to try to kind of reprogram the way in which we look at the world and think about uh, what do black people actually deserve um and what, what the safety um look like for black and brown people um and so i think that's you know that that's part of that work um that's, that's really important i think it's part of that movement work uh, that folks have been engaged in and we're engaging over the summer and I know we'll continue to, to, to engage in going forward. While black and brown folks um, may, have, may have benefited from these social movements, it was not, uh, much of the progress that was made would not have been possible without having formed coalitions across, I mean, enslavement would not have ended if just black people Absolutely. said we want to stop slave, you know, right. it, it, it required white abolitionists white folks who had, um, you know, at least a moral uh, uh, connection with the, the wrong and the harm that, that slavery wrought. Um, and the same has been true of the civil rights movement and the same is gonna be true of this movement. And I think one of the more powerful things about, you know, one powerful thing I will say about what I saw over the summer um, that I didn't mention before was that I saw a lot of instances where, um, you know, there are a lot more white people uh, marching, you know, biking through the streets, um, protesting than there were black folks. Um, mm-hmm. And that was not only, you know, and part of that could have been by design because I saw white allies step in front of and step, you know, and surround and, and circle mm-hmm. black folks when, when, when the cops would come and when harm was, would, was potentially going to be visited upon black people. Um, but it's also kind of like, you know, on a more hopeful, on a more hopeful note, um, when, you, when you ask me a question about what I not believe, what I believe uh, uh, now that I didn't believe before, um, I didn't realize how many white people there are actually who I think have a different consciousness about the world, um, and so that kind of leaves me a little bit more hope about the possibility for those that coalition building and that movement building. Um, and even if they're not all the way there yet at all, um, the fact that they're willing to step outside their house and recognize like, look, you know, um, this pandemic is, 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 you know, it's almost like the pandemic has finally said to like help white people understand like, okay, this is what it's actually like to be deprived of all the resources that you might ordinarily have. Um, and they can kind of align that sense of uh, deprivation with people who've been deprived so long by law and by, by virtue of our culture. Um, and so, uh, you know, so I think there is, there is kind of a hopeful note uh, to think about with respect to that, but I think coalition building is absolutely necessary because um, that work can't can't happen without building alliances across uh, across people, for sure. Getting this this struggle and this fight, uh, not because you know it's gonna be successful tomorrow, but because you're trying to build something better for the future, right? Um, and that's part of what we all have to, I think, that's a project we all have to be engaged in. You know, I think about my clients who are on death row, my clients who've been sentenced to life without parole. Um, I have a client right now who was, you know, sentenced to life without parole when he was 14 years old, um, spent 25 years in prison, um, and was paroled and now is in law school. Um, and you think about like tr- the, the, the capacity that people have to change, to transform themselves. Um, 
and the fact that we've gone on this road of throwing people away and discarding them and imprisoning crimes rather than people um, and thinking that that's the only way that we can solve some of these really deep and challenging problems. Um, to me, it's, a, it's an approach that, that um, the range of social problems that bring people in the criminal legal system beyond putting them in a cage or putting them in a huge dorm with a bunch of other people and, and depriving them of all the manner of dignity that, that they deserve. Um, and I, I think we have the capacity to do that if we just have the will. Um, and that's, I think that's what focusing on race, focusing on racial justice, focusing on our history, hopefully will spur us to, to, to action um, and provide us with the will to make, to make that type of change. So. And people have to stop profiting off of other people being in prison. Somebody yeah. made money for every one of those 25 years that that guy was in prison. Yep. Somebody made money off of him and yep. they were happy to. Yeah, yeah. And that's, yep. that's deeply problematic. Yeah, yeah. That's big business. You know, you think about this from like a, if you think about this purely from a cap, from a, you know, think about this as a cap, from a capitalist frame, like in order for this system to, to, to continue to operate, you need a certain number of people who are completely shut out of the labor market altogether, right? There's limited number of opportunities, limited number of jobs. Um, the number of resources you need to like make sure that a whole bunch of people who, can, who don't have that option um and you know the criminal system is, is big business um everybody stands to gain um new york city's budget i you know i saw something today we spent 18 and a half million 18 and a half billion dollars on, on on prisons and jails um and like about a third of that on mental health on schools on these other on these other pieces mm -hmm. Wow. You know, your budget's your priorities. Um, and that's, that's where we've, that's where we've put our priorities. Um, and, and, you know, um, we, we have it within our power to change that. Um, How much time does someone have to spend in jail to prove that they have made up for their crime? So many of the laws around the books that, 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 you know, determine what your punishment's going to be these are completely arbitrary numbers. Like nobody is, looked, nobody sat down and said, um, you know, I think five years for robbery is enough to rehabilitate people. Nobody sat down and said, you know, I think 25 years, 30 years um, is enough for a murder. Um, it's completely pulled out of thin air um, without any justification or rhyme or reason. And, and part of our parole work um, in New York state um, has been focused on changing the, the parole hearing process to ensure that black and brown people have a better chance of getting released on parole. Um, and through that work I've met and, and have been, you know, working alongside uh, folks who, who served decades in prison and who have been to the parole board, you know, four or five, 10, 12 times, they have put in the work to think about why they've been there. And, and have transformed themselves in ways that they've demonstrated they're deserving um, uh, of an opportunity to rejoin society. And we don't do this, you know, all over the world. Like prison is not, you know, um, America is very much unique in its situation, in, in, in its, in its uh, punishment um, and the punishment paradigm um, uh, that, we, that, we, that we've inflicted on people. Um, um, and so much of it is because of, of who we think uh, deserves or belongs in those places and, and, and who we think deserves the treatment that we, that we, that we give them. Um, um, 
and, and so you know part of that work is kind of unearthing those feelings and, and helping us think more critically about what we're doing with uh, those dollars um, you know you, you spend billions of dollars in prisons why not spend that money on, on some schools some job training uh, cleaning up the environment um, all those other things that we know are going to help people avoid those pathways in the prisons. I personally know, because I know you for, uh, as we said, 12 or 13 years, I know you, you get a lot of your joy from DJing, but um, yeah. in addition to that, or, or speak on that, where else does your joy come from? Um, yeah, I mean, DJing definitely brings me a lot of joy. Um, it's funny, the last time I DJed live, like a live event was March 9th. You know, it was a Thursday night. It was one of these situations where I, I usually, I DJ a, a party once a month in Bed-Stuy and have been for about um uh five or six years now maybe seven years now and i remember even you know wondering like whether or not we should do this because at that point people were talking about you know the covid and all this stuff and it was still a little bit unknown like how far how widespread it was and then two days later everything shut down and so that was the last time i dj'd a live event um but um you know i started djing in law school and it was really just a way for me to like escape like the law books and 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 focus on on something you know give me a give me some headspace to to think about something different and entertain myself and and ever since and it's it's been a real joy for me um just being able to take people on a musical journey um uh escape for a bit um and music is like art which i think is incredibly important and one of the things i think is the most important when we think about culture it's something that helps to transform your soul and, and, and shape your soul. And music is one of these things that, um, you know, it's unique in that you can hear a song and it connects you to and transports you to a memory or a place um, outside of where you are at that moment you're listening to the song. And it also is a place where you can kind of create or form a memory as you listen to a song. So there are songs in your life that you hear that song play, you, you remember either when the first time you heard it was or 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 you know the last time you heard it or some point when you were really enjoying something where you're really high or really low or right in between um and that's a powerful thing and to get people all on the same wavelength um enjoying themselves letting go of all the kind of stress of the world um there's really like nothing like it and being able to control that um you control it in a good way and, and conduct it in a good way um uh, it's, it's just really fun. Um, so it brings me a lot of joy. Um, the other things that bring me joy, I guess, are my, are my daughter brings me joy. She's three, three and a half. Just seeing the way that she looks at the world through a completely different lens and completely different perspective and helps me rediscover some of my old my own childhood is, is really powerful. And, you know, I think the last couple of things that bring me joy are, are, you know, spending time with friends, whether it's over Zoom now, but, you know, particularly when we're able to be in person, just, just kick back and talk to folks and, and just hang out, relax, um, yeah. and live life. I mean, that, that's, that's joyful and travel. All the stuff that I, that brings me joy has been, has been, uh, 
has <laughs> been uh has been short circuited a little bit here. Yeah, yeah I've been altered. Three year old. It's been, it's been a three year old. Yeah, she's she's, she's the, up she, under you. Yeah, she's she's the constant. <laughs> Probably uh, literally. Yeah, 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 exactly. No exactly. escape. No escape. Exactly. But, uh, but, yeah, but everything else is you know you know. I should, I should say my wife too, of course. I don't want to. Yeah, that's why I'm starting naming things. I'm starting naming stuff. My wife gives me joy too. Didi did. Love her every day. It brings me joy. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And it was a delight. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was, it was awesome. And enlightening to talk yeah. with you. And I think we met our goal that folks who listen to this interview will walk away. Um, educated and with a lot of things to, to think about and to consider. Great. Thanks, guys. That was really, I really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, to keep on keep on doing fantastic work because it's so necessary. Yeah, so, appreciate so necessary. you, brother. Appreciate you all. Take care. All right. All right. Catch peace you soon. Y'all. Peace. Peace, peace. That's our episode for this week. Sincere thank you to Vincent Sutherland for sharing his story and for engaging deeply in our questions about incarceration, the 13th Amendment, and what it means to come back better. Check out Vincent's work at the Center for Race, Inequality, and the Law at NYU, as well as the work of the Bail Project. And did you all know that the Debt Project is reading The Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson? Rhonda, how's your reading coming along? It's coming along. I'm proud of my progress. In fact, I have two copies of The Miseducation of the Negro. I guess I was really excited about getting started reading. I'm excited myself. Uh, I got my copy, I guess, three weeks ago. I read the first chapter and took a break. (laughs) (laughs) Bro, that's a long break. (laughs) But I do plan. uh, I would like to just uh, knock it out in one setting because it's that type of read where I can't do that. I just want to sit down and read the whole thing in one span. But if you don't have the book, check out your local independent bookstores, preferably Black-owned, and join us on Instagram Sunday, February 28th for our first Debt Project book talk. On the socials, I tweet random Nalia at educate underscore Rhonda, post pics of my auntie life on Insta at Rhonda Henderson, and talk books, books, and more books at Ruby Reads Chocolate City, also on Instagram. Aaron Harvey, Stallworth, are you on the socials? Yes, indeed. I stay quite active on IG at Aaron.Stallworth. I try to be active on our DEP project IG as well at the.dep.project. <laughs> I don't know why that makes me laugh every time. Okay, say it again so the, the people can hear. V.dep.projects. It just IG has folks. a little bounce to it. That's right. <laughs> we, need to, we need to put a beat to it, turn it into those viral uh, remixes. We'd, oh my gosh, it would be dope if Amorphous did that. You know, the DJ Amorphous. Yeah, Amorphous, get at us. Let's, let's tag Amorphous, see if they'll do something with Thank you for rocking with us this week. Resistance is a highway with many lanes, and I hope you find yours. Be careful, folks.